Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces Podcast, episode 556. And I'm joined this week by Gareth Edwards, the wonderful Gareth Edwards. I'm so excited about this one. You know I nerd out when I get directors on. I only choose directors I absolutely adore. Gareth is responsible for Rogue One, which is astounding. The creator which was a film last year that I absolutely adored and I'm looking forward to re-watching at home now it's on Disney Plus. And the dude just knows his shit. He was really good to talk to. Uh, we've got a few mutual friends and I've got two questions from two mutual friends. But they they had spoken highly of Gareth and said that this would be a, a fun and enjoyable conversation and they were right. It certainly was. So um, we may as well get on with it. And before we do, obviously, head to speechdevelopmentrecords.com to support the podcast and look good while doing so. Head to patreon.com slash pip to support the podcast. I mean, let's be honest, you're going to look pretty appalling supporting that way. But look, looks aren't everything, okay? Let's not be so shallow about these things. The important thing is that you're supporting the podcast. And you can head over to twitch.tv forward slash Scroobius Pipio to support, not to support, to come and hang out, to come and engage, interact, become part of the gang, become part of the elite crew. Without further ado, let's get on with the podcast. This is the Distraction Pieces podcast, episode 556, with Gareth Edwards. Right, we are recording. I'm here today with writer, director, uh, cinematographer, VFX magician, um, Gareth Edwards. How are you, man? And I do catering as well. You do catering as well? Yeah, the money's right. What what kind of catering are you offering? Have you got good, like, vegan options for everyone? What's Mm, the deal? Mainly sausage rolls from Greg's um, on the way to work, but... Uh, I could. I think they do vegetarian options. How exciting is it on set when you have a day where the, they treat everyone to something that isn't the regular catering, no matter how good the catering is? I was on a set once and they got an ice cream van in and everyone, it was worse than a school playground. Everyone was just like, oh, it's an ice cream van. Yeah. Well, I'm really bad. I'm like a big kid when it comes to eating away from home. And, and I get really fussy. And so on Star Wars, they would get me sort of like, I would go and get food. And if it's a bit cold or it wasn't something I liked, I just didn't eat it. And they learned this pretty quick. And so they made me every single day for about six months, a sausage bap with ketchup. And I had it every day without fail. And it became kind of like a comedy moment when it was brought on set for me to eat. Here it is. <laughs> That's perfection. Well, you've got to be eating right, particularly when you're someone who takes on so many wears so many hats on a production at times you need to be making sure you're fueling your your brain right surely i guess it's a false economy isn't it not to stop for a bit of food yeah i used to have it in my in my music days on music video days i wouldn't be able to eat until we wrapped and it was it was really bad and i brought that into to film and tv for a while and i've managed to snap out of it because yeah it is a false economy if you're just ploughing through and exhausted and your brain isn't firing properly. It's a very good way to lose weight. Like during the shoot, you lose loads yeah. and loads of weight without trying. And then during the edit, 
you put it on and you end up looking like you're six months pregnant. Yeah, yeah. It's a, as as you say, it's the, it's the the definition of a false economy. Um, there's loads I want to uh, talk to you about. The creator blew me away. Rogue One is maybe my favourite Star Wars film of all time. Monsters was astounding, but let's start kind of predictably at the beginning. Um, despite having pretty much as as Welsh a name as you can get, you grew up in the West Midlands, right? Yeah. Yeah, all my family's Welsh, mm. uh, but my dad moved to the Midlands when just before I was born to do start doing a job in as a systems analyst in computers. Right. Yeah, it didn't make any sense to me either. But he, no. he did that, and he but he was a massive rugby fan, and I think I was named after Gareth Edwards in the hope that I would become this super, you know, elite athlete and play for Wales. And it never happened. I was quite geeky with my sensibilities and so I felt like a bit of a black sheep of the family because every all my cousins and things like that they all are into rugby and then but the one thing we did have in common just to turn this into a therapy session (laughs) was was that you know it was those days where we had a Betamax player and we'd go down the video store and so the one thing we would do together is we would go and rent a film and I would be allowed one so I'd get something you know that I liked and then he would get something you know quite mature that he liked and because I like watching films so much when mine finished I was allowed to watch his if I wanted to. And so I would. And then he would explain at the beginning of each of the films, like why this was special. You know, so like if you watch like, say, Steve McQueen's Bullet or something, he would he would explain and set up like no one had done a car chase like this in a movie ever. And and why this was all a big deal. And and then I'd sit and watch it. And it I never thought his films were better than the ones I would get. You know what I mean? I, I still felt like Empire Strikes Back was better than The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. But I think it did definitely opened my mind to the idea that filmmaking is a legitimate career mm. that your parents would support so yeah i love that at a young age i think it's so good to be being taken through again some people sit there and say you should be able to put a film on and enjoy it or not enjoy it but i think it's a valid thing at point to see the history like if someone was the first to be doing this i always remember watching again in my touring days watching Grandmaster Flash DJ once. He was on a, a festival with us in, in in Japan. And I remember thinking, it's all right, I've seen better DJs. And then kind of slapping myself and going, no, but all the better DJs learn what they do from Grandmaster Flash. So while I might not be being blown away by these particular choices, he was the first one to do that. So it's important and you need to, yeah, r- respect and appreciate that. Yeah, I find as you get older, you appreciate things more. Like when I was young, like you obviously go to film school and they'll try to show you these films that were really significant in changing cinema. And like, you know, you'd sit and watch Citizen Kane. And I, you know, I think if anyone's honest, you sit and watch that movie and you go, it's okay. You know what I mean? And you move on and get on with your life, you know, think about it too much. But then what happens is over time you go, that was the first film ever to really do camera movement the way it happened. And it was like, mm. it was actually the first film that felt really, really like, so much attention to the directing of it, you know, and, and the cinematography and the way the story is told visually um, more than any other at the time. And that's why it blew everyone away back then. But we just take that for granted. Like that becomes the vocabulary of the next bunch of films. Yeah. And like even the French New Wave, you know, you get you start watching that and going, I don't get it. Like why? Why do people care about these films? They're like bad versions of the really good films we have now. And then you have to rewind time and go, wait a minute, a jump cut never existed like this. You know what I mean? Like a freeze frame, uh, like it was so rebellious. And all that stuff that's just absolutely normal now in TV and film, they invented it all. And so it's, 
when you watch that stuff, I think you just have you have to you have to watch it through the eyes of that era to really like appreciate why it's why it's important. How good are you at doing that? Because I was watching um, an early Gerard De- Depardieu film recently. I can't think of the name of it. And it was astounding, but you had to watch it through the eyes of the era because there was a lot that went on in it that is completely unacceptable and not, you know, not <laughs> not positive in modern society. But it was it, it it was a weird watch watching now because there was a lot that I'm like, well, I don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't personally make this film now, but the energy of it and the excitement of it from the time is is palpable and it comes through. Yeah, there are some films that still punch through in their own way, like irrelevant of the time they were made. So I, at school, we had to pick a, you know, there's one of these things we have to do a book review and I'd never seen 2001. Mm-hmm. And and so I just picked the book 2001 and started reading it and it blew me away. It was like this perfect science fiction story. And I realised as I was turning every page, I think I'm reading the best science fiction book ever written I'll never have this moment again. And I pictured it very Spielbergian, you know what I mean? Like very much like Close Encounters as I was reading Mm. it in terms of the visuals and the storytelling. And then I watched, I went went and rented Kubrick's, you know, 2001, obviously a masterpiece. But when I hit play, as a 15-year-old, I was slightly bored and slightly like, oh, this is a bit flat. You know what I mean? This is not as cool as I was thinking it would be. And kind of left it alone, went away, did something else. About a month later, I was like, in the video shop and I was like, I'm going to rent that again and put it on again. And then what happens is over time, it just like infects you. And like now I consider it one of the greatest movies ever made. If someone said it was the best ever, I wouldn't argue with them. There's so much boldness about that filmmaking that hasn't gone away. And yeah, so it's, I think really, truly great films. They manage to just stick around and and you don't appreciate them. You know, I'd say that many films like that, like Blade Runner and things, I, I, you know, as a kid, I saw Blade Runner. It wasn't Star Wars. Mm. It's a bit boring. It's Harrison Ford, but you know, he's just walking around talking a lot. And and then now it's like there isn't a better film in terms of world building and science fiction. It's just the best one ever. And so, and it's funny because you, you then have ideas later in life as you're trying to make films or you're just dreaming about making films. You go, oh, it'd be really cool if someone did like um, a cityscape sci-fi, a bit like a manga, but it's real photo yeah. reel and and as you start doing that you go one day you come across Blade Runner again and go oh you idiot that's what you saw when you were that kid <laughs> yeah, what? yeah. And, you, and you realize I'm oh my god why was I so blind and so I think the best stuff someone told me and it was one it's really nice advice to give me once they said that the lightest element isn't helium or whatever it, it's um talent mm-hmm. and it always floats to the top you can't stop it. And I think these great films, no matter what keeps them down, someone will spot it one day and recommend it to two people. And those two people will recommend it to another four. And it will just find its way to the top again. It like, it might yeah. take 50 years, like, it, you know, it's a wonderful life or something, but it'll, it'll do it eventually. So, so was it, it mainly sci-fi that was appealing to you as a kid? Were, were they the main films that you were choosing when you were choosing a film or was there a variation? Yeah, I mean, it's probably the dominant theme. My dad would make me watch all sorts of things, obviously. But I think science fiction, yeah, science fiction would have high score if you looked at my video collection and my shelf Mm. when I was younger. And I don't know why that is. Well, I sort of do. I think stories are sort of, they're not true. You know what I mean? They're kind of made up and condensed. They're kind of, really, they're metaphors for something that is true. Um, They're not like literally saying something. They're kind of like, you know, an an analogy for, for something that's true to life. 
And if you're going to make shit up and, and have a metaphor, you might as well go all the way and, mm. and go into science fiction or fantasy where you can really make it up. And weirdly, science fiction, I think, and fantasy or whatever genre films, they they sneak under the radar. Like they feel like pure entertainment, yeah. but a really, a really good one will have something to say and you won't even notice it's being said, but it'll you'll carry it with you, you know, through life and it'll pop yeah. up now and again. And for me, I think, again, bringing my parents into it is we were on holiday when I was about 11. We were really lucky. We saved up and went to America. I always wanted to go. And we were in Arizona and we were having to find a hotel. We weren't going to make it to where we wanted to go in time. And it was getting dark and we pulled into this little town and there was classic motel sign, you know, something out of Psycho or whatever. And we pull in and they had this one room. We all had to share it, you know, so I had to sleep with my mum and dad. And we turned the telly on. It was one of those old TVs that you clicked up, you know, to change channels, it clicks around. Yeah. And it just so happened that as we clicked it on, it, the Twilight Zone was starting, the black wow. and white Twilight Zones. And I'd never seen one. And I was so tired. I, tr- I had jet lag. But I tried to stay up and watch it. And I fell asleep for the twist ending. And right. so the next, next day as we drove to like the Grand Canyon, my dad spent like two hours of the car journey telling me a blow-by-blow account of this Twilight Zone episode and then some other ones that I'd never seen. And I was like, oh my God, this sounds amazing. And so I ended up recording every single Twilight Zone that had been made, which was a funny little story in that it was on the um, Bravo. Do you remember that channel mm-hmm. on satellite? So it was on yeah. Bravo at 11.30 at night. And at 12, Bravo would become the adult channel. Yeah. And obviously we didn't, we didn't, we didn't pay for that. And so it'd be scrambled, but all the audio would be perfect. Right, so you'd hear all the grunts and the and the seventies yeah. um, funk music or whatever, and so I had all these. My dad would record all these episodes for me, and then send them to me at university. And when I started university, I was in halls of residence, and I, I was feeling a bit homesick, so I put one on, and it was blasting away. And I fell asleep. Woke up about two a.m. and there was just this porn music and porn <laughs> <laughs> sex sounds just blasting out of my room you know, with this scrambled image and I had to quickly turn it down. And it was one of those things where the next day I was really torn, like, do I go up to people and say, did you hear a porno playing last night from my room? Because honestly, <laughs> what it is, is the Twilight Zone is on Bravo at 11.30 p.m. And or do you just take the hit? And so I didn't say anything and I was just like mortally embarrassed then. But I wonder who heard. I wonder who heard and who made note and if <laughs> if, if if they judged or respected more from off the back yeah. of it. I was like, he's well, he's very open about it. The he's confidence not of having it. it on really yeah. loud, just blasting yeah. out. Yeah, what? <laughs> I enjoy I enjoy <laughs> 70s pornography. What's what's everyone's problem? So was uni the the route into filmmaking then? Because it seems again, it's mind blowing to me how you get from a kid in the West Midlands to being writer, director, cinematographer, and visual effects on monster. On, on monsters so what was that 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 journey and how did you yeah get to take on so many roles well basically yeah i had the same feeling which is i don't know how on earth you do this this is probably impossible and i'm just deluded and so like you do things like you you know there's very little it was before the internet and there's so little information and so i would grab any book about steven spielberg or george lucas or coppola or someone and read it to see what they did. And what they all seemed to do is they would go to film school, make a short film, and then show it to someone in Hollywood and get offered a directing gig. And I was like, well, there you go. That's what I'm going to do. Yeah, and, and yeah, so I went to film school, made short films, showed it, sent it to people in Hollywood and got this really polite rejection letter. Hmm. Um, and it was like, oh, shit. So at that point, it was like, oh, my God, I'm going to have to just rethink everything. And 
I was lucky in the sense that my flatmate at uni, he was studying this brand new thing called computer animation. And it was it was when Jurassic Park just came out in the cinema and it was clearly the future of filmmaking. And so I went back to the Midlands. I lived with my fa- family and, and I bought, I got into debt basically on the credit cards and got a computer and, and started learning using pirate software and just learning how to do like animation very badly. And then I would do little testing. So I'd film with my dad's video camera like um, in the driveway of the house and put robots in. Yeah. Or I had I had like dinosaurs in my bedroom and silly things like that. And they weren't great, but they were okay. And then I would go for job interviews in London and I'd have all my directing, like my shorts that I'd done at film school and places. And then at the end, I just tagged on these like VFX shots, these robots and things. And the interview would go okay. And then suddenly at the end, they would see these robots and go, what is this? And you'd say, oh, that's, it's just something I'm experimenting with at home. What do you mean? Well, you know, just on my home computer. You can do this on a home computer, you know, and this was like 96. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, yeah, just Windows 95. And they're, no, 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 but we're paying millions of dollars to do this down the road in Soho. (laughs) How come you can do this on a PC? And I was like, yeah, it's from PC World. And they couldn't wrap their head around it. And so I ended up getting job offers like, would you come do this for us? Mm. And I just got way more job offers doing visual effects than I did anything to do with directing. And so I sort of wasted the next 10 years, well, it felt that way. 10, 15 years doing visual effects, always thinking in the next six months, I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to stop all this. and I'm going to go make a film. And it just, every six months, there was another excuse I was making in my head not to do it. Because, yeah. you know, obviously if you do it and it's shit or it doesn't work, you have to admit to yourself that you've sort of been lying your whole life, you yeah. know, about what. And so I, I was putting it off and off. And then eventually when I play that game of looking on IMDb, which I wouldn't advise to anyone, where you just look at your heroes and how old they were when they made their first film. Mm. And and slowly one by one, I was passing everybody, like yeah. getting older and older. And I was like, oh my God. And then, but thank God for Ridley Scott, because I think he was 40 when he made his first film or somewhere mm. around there. And so I got to 35 and the I'd say the fear of, it's the day the fear of never having tried and being an old man, knowing I never give it a go, was worse than the fear of learning I'm, I was, you know, I'm deluded and, and I can't do it. Yeah. And on that day, I just stopped and and pulled up all the people I did VFX for and said, I'm not doing it anymore, sorry, and I'm going to try and make a film. And that makes it sound far more simpler than it was. But yeah, it was, we were just sort of leaping off a cliff at a certain point. I love it. And it's a huge ch- choice. Now, I, I think there really is, is something be, be, be beautiful in, particularly in sci-fi, when directors are coming from that world, from the literal world building kind of of side of it. And I think of people like Gavin Rothery when he did Archive, like having done the visual effects and that on things like Moon um, and Kib Tavares with The Kitchen on, on Netflix recently. I think there's something beautiful there when people have just almost taught themselves and figured it all out. There's, I don't know, there's a certain... Tr- truth to it and that comes across in the creator and I want to jump forward to the creator now because I want to make sure we get to talk about that I loved it I saw it in the cinema in the electric at Portobello Road where the front row is like beds so you lay down to watch it which really kind of added to like scale is something I want to talk to you about because I think it's something you're a master of but I'm just really glad it's finding it's coming to a big audience with Disney a plus and kind of opening up there. Is is that exciting for you? That it's going onto a platform where all the more people can can find it and stumble upon it. 
Yeah, no, totally. I mean, it's like, that's all you really want as a filmmaker is people to see what you've done, even if they hate it, you know. Yeah. You, you want to give them a chance to hate your work. That's kind of... Yeah, I want all people to hate me. You know what I mean? <laughs> Not just a few. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, no, it's a, it's, it's a really... You do question yourself when you make a film. You get to... When, depending on the outcome, because you can't control the outcome of a movie mm. other than like, you know, how you try your damnedest to make the best film you possibly can. And then what happens to it the second you finish is totally out of your hands and it just becomes like... Like we had the actor strike, you know, when that film got released... Yeah. So the actors couldn't do any interviews, you know, you know, they couldn't go on those chat shows and do, or do or do magazines or anything. And there was no way of predicting that that was going to happen back when we, you know, picked the release date and things like that. And, and so, yeah, it's like, I always think I used to work in this cash and carry in, in Nuneaton and it had this poster up that was like a triangle mm. and it said fast, good, cheap in each corner, pick two, Right. Like you right. can't have all three. And I yeah. feel like with filmmaking, there's like maybe like an octagon version of that. Yeah. Where you can have this, this good thing, this good thing, this good thing, but you can't have all of them. Mm. There's always something that you're going to sacrifice. And the thing that you would take over any of the others is that people like it, you know? Yeah. And so if that's how it all plays out, that eventually the, anybody who's seen the film, I just assume nobody's seen anything I've ever done. <laughs> and so anyone who, who says something nice to you, also, I'm that kind of person, you know, when you bump into someone fam famous or slightly, you know, that you, you like for some reason, I, whatever I'm saying that's nice to them, it goes up times three, you know, right. what I mean? because I'm just sort of so like, oh my God, it's so insane. You know, you see, you, you blabber a bit. Yeah. And so I, anyone says anything nice to me, I turn, turn it down by three times the amount. Yeah, I do exactly the same. Even if something said, someone says something really nice, by the, by, by the time I walk away, I think they thought it wasn't shit, which yeah. I'll take, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so... Yeah, it's on. Uh, and what's great is it was going on Hulu and Hulu is now part of Disney Plus. So it's got an even bigger audience. Mm. I would say I wouldn't, you don't really know, you know, what the scenario is. But every day there's been an email off someone random saying they just saw it and saying something nice. And and that's been really heartwarming. Like that's been, because you do all this stuff and it's really hard making a film. And you do at the end go, why, why are you doing this? Like, what is it you're trying to achieve? Like, what is it you want at the end mm. that where you'll turn around and go, oh, that was worth it. And I think I decided that it's having someone that you respect say they liked it. It's kind of yeah. like the best best reward. Yeah. It seems. I completely agree. I've got two or three people who are friends of mine, but I respect massively that whenever I'm writing or working on scripts or anything, part of me is thinking, what would Brett think of this? Or or what would right. Paddy think of it? And, and things like that. And it's like, Okay, okay, this is good. This is like, you, you, you want to have that extra extra motivation to, yeah, impress those whose art you respect. It's funny, there's, so James Klein, who's the designer on the film, the production designer, mm. we grew up, there's a lot of peers that he grew up with. And to me, I, I used to buy all their DVDs and, and always try and learn how to paint based on these people. And one of them is called Ryan Church. Mm -hmm. And um, he did all the Star Wars films, the prequels and stuff like that. And so when we would design stuff, we would design it and go, and we always were like, our goal was like, but would this make Ryan jealous? You know what I mean? And it's like, and it'd be like, nah, he wouldn't be jealous. And we'd keep going until we felt like Ryan would be jealous of this. Yeah. And our, our secret goal was that one day he would email James and say something like that after he saw the film. I love it. So yeah, it is a motivation. It's like what you're, what people you, who you, it's, heart, it's heartbreaking if someone you really highly regard didn't like it, if you know what mm. I mean. Yeah. And you can tell when that happens sometimes if you ever got to talk to someone. Like you can, you can tell when someone's lying. 
yeah. you know, you don't say anything, obviously, but you can you go away going, oh shit, I wish that I had, I wish I hadn't met them. Yeah, I <laughs> wish I that. didn't know. Yeah. I'd rather have kept that one a mystery. What, what made you create the creator as such? Why was this the story you wanted to tell? Yeah, what was the starting point, I guess? There were a few combination of things. I guess as a kid growing up, there's a bunch of films I always wanted to make. This was not one of them, actually. And so I, every time you finish a movie, you go, okay, now I guess I'm going to pull off that shelf in my mind, one of mm. those films I've always wanted to do. And then something I was out, something else come, always comes along and takes you by surprise. And and I, I guess I was looking for two things mainly. One was the holy trinity of science fiction. There's like three types of movies you can make. One of them is space. The other one is like monsters or aliens. And the other one is um, robots. And I'd done the other two. And so like my brain was sort of going, come on, do a robot movie. And it's really hard to do a robot movie because you have to make a bunch of robots. And so you can't do it cheaply. It's not like, you know, you can hide the monster. Um, You have to see it all the time. And so it's going to get expensive. And so I had to figure out, the other thing I wanted to do is I had these massive experiences doing two big blockbusters in Hollywood or whatever you want to call that. Mm. And then, and essentially my first movie was this highly creative experience that I sort of really enjoyed um, where I had no money at all. And basically, if, if you write the pros and cons of having no money, when you get to have $200 million, you just swap them over. And everything that was really easy becomes really hard and everything that was really hard becomes really easy. Yeah. And so the whole time I was doing those bigger films, I just was going, there's got to be a, another scenario that where you get all the pros of having lots of money and all the pros of having no money at all. And it's not as simple as just doing a mid-budget level film because you can end up in a situation where you've got the ambition, you're trying to be a blockbuster, but you can't. So you look really rubbish. Yeah. And you're trying to be creative and artistic, like an indie gorilla film, but you're not allowed to because there's so much money riding on this. Yeah. So like trying to find that sweet spot became like quite a thought process. And and the simplest way we pitched it to the studio was that on a normal movie, you say, say you've got a hundred units of money. They take 10 units and they put it like in the bank and say, that's that's in case something goes wrong. That's like a safety net, like an insurance policy. Now go off and make the film. And I said, could we take that 10 units that you normally put in the bank and could we go make the move with that and then have the 90 units left to do all the visual effects afterwards? And it's not quite how that played out. That's a really simplistic approach to it because we had the pandemic and everything. But that was yeah. the that was the goal. And everyone saw the sense in that. Everyone was like, yeah, why doesn't everyone kind of do that? But it was unproven. So what, what we had to sort of trick them into it a little bit. So we... We, we did this big pitch and presentation and I did all this artwork with my favourite artists and went in and I wrote a screenplay and I went in and did, you know, I hate pitching films. I hate it. I'm not a car salesman. I just end up like being very British about it. <laughs> and yeah, just, you know what I mean? You just don't, I just hate, you know, you, it's really hard to, to sort of talk about something why it's amazing and should be made, you know? Yeah. And so, so, so you had this, you have this sort of like, more normal conversation where I'm showing them all this stuff and explaining what I think, why why I'd like to do it. And they were like, great, let's go. Let's, they basically were in, but they, people say that and two years, three years go by, you never make the film. Mm. And so I was like, look, can we just go on a location scout? Could you just give us a little bit of money? And me and Jim, who's the producer who I made monsters with, could we, could we just go to a few countries and just try and find locations? And they can't say no to that because it's so little money. It's like basically me and Jim having a romantic holiday. (laughs) 
And so we snuck, a, we didn't tell him, but we took a camera with us and it was, and it had like a 1970s, you know, anamorphic lens and it was, Amazing. and, and I shot what you might call, you know, art house, you know, nonsense, but I shot a bunch of imagery of these different places and I'd shoot like a monk going and praying in a, in a temple uh, that we just found in Cambodia when we were in like Angkor Wat, you know, and didn't, didn't control any of it, just let it all happen. And then we changed, we, then I went with a begging bowl to ILM and said, could you prove this theory out? And could you turn them into a robots? And could we add sci-fi to the back of these other buildings okay. in paddy fields? And, and they did it all, like we did it really cheap and quick. And I think everybody knew the amount of money they'd spent and was like, wait a minute. So if that 10 minute thing cost us a hundred grand, say, then that means we can make this movie for very little. And we didn't in the end, we made it for a lot of money, but it, it's what got the ball rolling. But still quite a little amount of money for things of that scale and, and and that size, I guess. So it does have that. Again, it was a really interesting one because I can't think of a film that was that big, like visually and concept and everything, that I heard so many people word of mouth recommending. Like I always... Oh. Uh, w- w- when I'm pitching stuff, it's always little indie things. And my argument is always people don't word of mouth about the new... A Sylvester Stallone film, for example. Loads of people will go and see it, or the new Fast and the Furious. People will go and see it because it's huge, but the ones that you see people raving about and using that free marketing are kind of indie films and 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 stuff that really hits you and you really connect with and you want to get people in this in the screens for. And the creator felt like it had that. The, the, the amount of people that before I saw it was like, you've got to go and see it. You've got to see it in the cinema. You've got to, yeah go and witness oh. this so it did somehow f- find that sweet spot i think oh no that's great um yeah it's really hard to know what anyone like it, it was a really difficult birth in that so we didn't have a premiere because of the actors mm. you know they weren't allowed to come and so i was like okay well i know what i'll do i'm gonna buy 50 tickets opening weekend and invite all the actors to come we won't tell anyone and we'll just go and watch it together and have a big party afterwards yeah. and so that's that's what i did and they all came to la and then that morning, as I finished my last publicity interview, I felt a bit funny and I did a test and I had COVID and I was like, oh shit. And so I had that whole weekend, I, I was in bed and I couldn't join any of the, you know, celebrations or anything. And so you look online, you know what I mean? I love like an idiot. I got on Twitter and I was like, I got to see what people think because it's killing me. And for every like 10 compliments, if there's some one person hating it, that's the yeah, bit you, of course. that stabs you a bit and... And so, so yeah, I'm I'm always thinking I could do way better each time and everything. But um, that yeah, that means a lot if people said that to you. Thanks. Yeah. Um. Well, sp- speaking of that of that cast, I've got a question in. I've got two questions in from two two different mutual friends. But one of them was was in the creator. It's from um, Amachata Patel, previous hey. podcast guest and 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 friend. Now he sent two questions. The first question he said was. <laughs> Why are you are you so horrible about my mum? But then <laughs> he he improved it and look at the wall of text I'm about to, oh my god to read out to you. So it, and he specifically says please read verbatim. Okay, hey Gareth, hope you're well. You haven't bit have been replying to my texts. I'm guessing your phone is playing <laughs> up again. So this seemed like the easiest way to get in contact with you. I just wanted to ask. We sometimes shot entire scenes in one long uncut take. My first scene with Maddie was one 48-minute long take. 
you would roll handheld, call action, and then we'd go until we until you had covered every angle. Apart from the way it sped up shooting and kept us in it, so to speak, what drew you to that process when we are shooting? I thought Pip's listeners would be interested in hearing about the process from your own horse's mouth, so to speak. Hope you're well, mate. Be great if you could get back to me about that thing next week. It's pretty chill, just a mate's birthday. I mean, you should totally come. <laughs> I'm only going to be like three of... It's only going to be like three of us. They're cool guys. And we're going to get like every rad pop tart flavor. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> um, I remember you saying when I, I I ran after you on set one time that you loved competitive puzzle game evenings. People <laughs> let me know what time you want me to pick you up on Friday because if I wait for this to come out, it'll probably be too late. Love you. So <laughs> there we go. Tell me about that shooting process and, and how you make that work. And Ummer in general, he's a wonderful, wonderful human. <laughs> yeah, some aspects of that question are not scientifically true. Okay. But um, uh, I'll let you guess which ones. <laughs> the, um, firstly, Ummer, let me just, can I say something nice about Ummer for a second? Mm-hmm. So Ummer played three different characters in our film. He played two on screen that you can see where he kind of is a clone of himself. Well, not a clone. Basically, these, these AI are mass-produced. So I thought it'd be fun to have a character that that turned up more than once, even though he might have hit his demise, you know, and yeah. things like this. There's a I won't spoil it for everyone, but there's a fun thing that he get he got to do in the movie. And then he also plays this robot, which ended up being named after a friend from school, uh, Sukjinda Sekon. So he's called Sekon. And I essentially we made this movie, and I'll answer his question in a second. But we made this <laughs> movie um, where we didn't always say or know, and I didn't want to know who was going to be a robot and AI and who was going to be a human because it's in a society in Southeast Asia in the future where where they're fully integrated. And what happens is when you have, it's not true of the actors, but it's true of the background people where you, you know, the extras and stuff where you say, oh yeah, you're going to be a robot or something like this. People start behaving like robots. Yeah. And and I was like, no, 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 you know, no, no. The In our world, the robots, they think they're human. So they behave completely human-like. And I thought if our film had anything to offer at all, it was that the mannerisms of the robots were going to be completely natural. Like whenever you spend tens of thousands of dollars to make a robot in a, in a movie, they're always front and center and the performance is always a little bit pushed, you know, in mocap. Mm-hmm. And, and so I really, I got more and more excited about the idea of something more, you know, our film's not as good as this, but something more Terrence Malick-like that, that happens to be a robot, you know, where it's just completely naturalistic behavior. And I, so I was like, in post, that's when we'll decide all the robots, you know, and we, we never, and ILM, Industrial Light Magic, who did the VFX and along with some of the vendors, they didn't know who was going to be a robot either, you know what I mean? And they just signed up to this whole thing of like figuring it out in, later, you know, based on the film. And suddenly there was this moment where I was like, this, we're making a robot movie and I don't have a hero robot. Like I have the odd person in the background, but I don't have a front and center great performance robot that you really care about. And I called up Amma because I was like, I really want it to be his third character. But asking an actor to sort of become invisible and mm. just play the, like every single thing about that performance is Amma. Like every eye dot, every little head move, it, they didn't change a thing. It's all Amma's performance. But visually, obviously his face, he doesn't look like a robot in real life, you know? And so I made probably the hardest call of post-production and because I really love Amma. And so I felt really... Like, what's he going to say? He was the kindest person ever. He was like, Gareth, like, because he's a filmmaker, right? He's a director. Mm. He was like, all that matters is the story and the experience of watching the film. 
you know, it's such an honor to be in this movie, you know, and I loved every aspect of it. And, and I hundred percent agree and support it, like go do it. And I, I wanted to cry. I was like, that was not what I thought he was going to say, yeah. you know. And and if he didn't have two other characters, it's n- yeah. not what he would have said at all either. No, right? no that's absolutely. The third one. As long as the other two are me, as long yeah. as my face is on the other two, that's then we're good. Yeah, and when I, when I told him at the end of his like generous offer that I'd cut out the other two, he completely went back on it. And then, and then like the, his lawyers got in touch and we had to put the other two back in. It's been really, I'm so I'm glad, I'm glad he wants to do the, the board puzzle. Yeah. Get yeah. together. Cause it's been, it's been a difficult few months. It's been rocky. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. So the four, 48 minute takes to name drop for a second. And I, I've only met like two famous people ever. But one famous person I got to meet, I was very lucky. I was doing Godzilla and and it was being designed um, along with a lot of other people. It was being designed by Weta Workshop mm-hmm. in New Zealand. So I got to go down there. And then as a result, Peter Jackson let us hang out on the set of The Hobbit. And wow. it was one of the greatest experiences I've ever had. I've, it was a real honor. And I noticed when he was filming that he never said cut. And I asked him at some point why. And basically, and it's something everyone experiences when they make a film. The second you say cut, it's like, was it called Pablo's dogs with the whistle or something? Mm-hmm. The second you say cut, all the crew can come in into the shot and like makeup can do touch-ups. They can move lights. They can change cables. They can mess with the set. And everyone comes in and does that thing that was really bothering them the whole time they were watching the take. Mm-hmm. And you look at your watch and 10 minutes go by, sometimes 20, and then you get to do take two. And then in that world, you get about five goes at a setup or a shot and then you have to do a different scene. And it's it's really, really difficult way to make a film, I find. And in my first movie, it was not like that whatsoever. You know what I mean? We could we had no crew, so we just ran around doing whatever we wanted, whenever we wanted. Yeah. And on the big movies, it wasn't like that. And so I took that to heart. And basically, if you don't say cut, they can't come in. So you just say reset at the end and everyone goes back to their original positions and you film, you, f- you find a different angle and then you film it again and no one's allowed to come in or do anything. And also it means the actors stay in the zone. They don't really have to like think about anything else. They, if they're in an emotional place, they can just quickly stay in it and, and off we go again. Because the cut instantly makes you the actor rather than the character. You want to know if there's yeah. any feedback. You want to know if this was right or that was right. And you become yeah. self-critical. Whereas, yeah, I, I love that. If you remain as the character as such, then, yeah. And on top of that, yeah. they're like, let's say you do a scene, you play out a scene. And like, because inevitably an actor will read, you know, they want to come do their homework and come prepared. So they'll read a scene and they'll have an opinion. Like, I think I'd stand by the window and then I'd walk over to the chair for that. And then I'd probably do this for that bit. And they'll have their little idea. And sometimes that can unfold and it feels a bit false, like a little bit like a movie. And then what happens if you just say go again and now they're sat down, they're not by the window and the scene has to start again. And it's nothing how it's it's nothing at all like how they pictured it because they can't, yeah. and they, all the other actors are now in different places as well. Yeah. It breaks their pre, you know, assumptions about, about what the scene was going to be like. And suddenly it starts to get more real and the performances even get better because it becomes a bit more like a documentary. And I'm, I'm, I'm blissfully unaware of how long the takes, to, like if someone at the end, when I finally said cut, said, how long do you think that was? I'd say five minutes, you know what I mean? And then they go like, no, that was 40 minutes. You know what I mean? Like, like, cause you become like a little kid in the cinema. I'm watching that viewfinder as if I'm sat in the like electric theater on a bed. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just making decisions based on that 
person lying down watching the big screen yeah. and going, oh, you know, it'd be really cool as if you if it now went over here or it did that or they did that instead. And I'm trying not to be on location with the actors. I'm trying to be in the cinema like a year from now. Yeah. And what am I thinking watching this, you know? I love that. Well, I mean, one of the things that jumped out to me a lot, and I think it's, you've done it in all your all your films really, but particularly in in the creator, it was so striking, is is your use of, of scale or or the eye with which you perceive scale or allow the audience to perceive scale. And obviously in recent years, we've had Marvel films and, you know, the expanding Star Wars universe where we get to see so many huge and wonderful, amazing things as visual effects have, you know, come along and along and along. We get to see these huge things. So, so often in the creator we see them from a human perspective. So we don't even see all of them. There'll be certain robots or certain ships or or vehicles that we just see the wheel coming in and stuff like that. And it really just put me there. Again, I think also it helps that it's shooting in, you mix sci-fi and nature rather than a lot of films will always go into big, big cities and it's all very man-made. You're mixing, as you say, the rice fields and robots and, and all these other things. So where did you come to that choice, I guess, of of how you present these amazing creations to the viewer? Yeah, some people say this about the stuff I've done, and I always find it hard to answer because it feels like the obvious choice half the time. But I do think that, you know, like less is more, like more isn't more most of the time. Like, And especially in computer graphics, what started to happen, and this is no disrespect to anyone, but this thing ha- started happening called um, previs, you know, this. Mm-hmm. And so they basically computer animate scenes from the film before you go shoot them. And it's how it helps these really complicated big VFX movies have a plan. Like they, they basically do like a video game version of the movie, so, you know, yeah. big set pieces. And then they break that apart and then they go shoot all those little pieces. But because the vocabulary of video games and a lot of the people who got into that making those previses were from the video game world. It started to have camera moves and shot compositions that aren't from like classical cinema. They're not David Lean movies. They're more like something you'd see on a PlayStation. And everyone got very excited about that because a lot of whiz bang, you know, and stuff to that. But then the, pr- the problem is when it becomes photo real, there's so much fighting for your attention and the camera is doing things that make actually portrays the weight of and the scale of the world and mm. and the realism that I've just never, ever gone for that approach. We've had previs, but we always like really like get sit, make sure like that we cast the previs people really well, that they have that sort of sense of filmmaking and, and, and doing visual effects for a living. It was one of the cheapest tricks in the book was, you know, production value in the, let's say you have a little green screen shot or something and like choose whatever it is, but say it's a battle and you've got a hundred people in you literally just press control D to duplicate. And now you've got 200 people. Press it like mm-hmm. 10 more times. You know what I mean? You've got a thousand. And producers would go, oh my God. You know what I mean? Like just for pressing a button 10 times, I suddenly had like everyone super excited and you'd get given even more work. Yeah. And so, so like insane with scale, you just scale it up. You know, you just di- turn that dial and it gets like 10 times bigger. And the trick is with scale and things like this is, is it's like you find you have to, Things can't fit. They, they have to go off screen. You know what I mean? Like if it, something gets bigger and then you move the camera to, to see it again, it's not bigger anymore. Everything's relative. And so 
for something to look big, you need to have something in there that's a size you know, like a person. Mm. And there, when I was growing, like when I was trying to do visual effects, there's this one image I really loved by this artist called John Harris. You will look at this shape. It was just a cube kind of shape. And if you said to someone, how big's that cube? They would say, I think it's like 200 miles wide. And you'd go, tell me why you think that. And there was nothing in it. There's not a person, there's not birds, there's not yeah. anything. And you go, why are you thinking that? And they wouldn't be able to answer. And then I I analyzed it to death. So I'd go, I'll tell you why I think it is. And you start going to all the reasons. And then I would just use all those reasons in all my work. Yeah. Like whenever I was doing a shot, I'd try and add those ideas in. For instance, yeah. like one of them is shadows cast by clouds. Like we know how big a cloud is. And even if there's no cloud, you can't see the clouds. When there's light, dark, light, dark, it tells you that must be at least, you know, a, a kilometer away, you yeah. know. And things like this. And so it just, all these little tricks add to a sense of scale. And I would wander around all the time as a kid, listen to music. And I guess if there was a little like exercise or do in my brain, I would imagine really epic things. Like that's kind of what I aspired to do a lot. I didn't mean for it to become like <laughs> my main thing. But it was just like, yeah, it was just like going for a run, you know, with your mind. But it, it makes perfect sense hearing you talk about how you started doing this because if you're putting, like you, you say you need something in there for scale, right? Your bedroom gives you good scale. It's the bedroom that you know. So putting dinosaurs in your bedroom or robots on your drive and things like that, you know what the scale is and what's going to be going off camera and such. It also struck me when you were talking about going to America as a kid because America is somewhere that particularly if you go as a kid, your perspective delivers everything that you've seen in the films. It is all so huge and it is all so big and you're looking up at everything and it's it's this amazing thing. So yeah, it feels like all of that has come across in eventually in, in how you make films. So yeah, I love it. I've got another question from another mutual friend and it's about AI and the film... The creator is about AI, but it also links us over to Rogue One because it's from Riz Ahmed. Hey. And he he's asked, what do you think the future is for actors if we can all be replaced with AI? Are you excited about never having to work with annoying <laughs> actors again? And do you think AI will replace directors too? So big AI questions here from Riz. <laughs> oh, I love Riz. Um, I love Riz. Okay. It's a tough question. Yeah. It's not a softball question, is it? No. Okay, let's do it though. I think the, the, the look, firstly, no one knows, right? We're at this very early stage of all this. And to try and predict what it's going to be like five, 10 years from now, we're all going to sound like idiots if you played this back. But in terms of replacing actors, I think there is, a, there is an issue. Do you know what I mean? Like, as I think definitely models, you know what I mean? Like that's already starting to, you can feel that one starting to come. And, you know, as, as video gets better and they can do more realistic, you know, animation, not even animation is the word, but like emulate, behavior from footage and things like this it's going to be super interesting i think that my job is just as much under threat as an actor like mm. i spent i guess 15 years i think if i've got a, a not a strength but an, a skill set of any kind the thing i would probably think it was was looking at an image and knowing maybe what to do to make it look a little bit of, of a better image yeah you know and now you don't need that skill set like you can type in a pro in a prompt, you know, on Mid Journey or something, and it it looks pretty damn good, like compositionally, lighting wise, because it's pulling from all the great photography 
you know, that's ever been and, and films that have been made, it, it, the, the default setting that comes out is, is quite a beautiful, nicely composed thing. Um, that's like hard to improve on. Sometimes you go, well, that's pretty damn good, you know? So I think I'm threatened as much. The problem we have is that these things have happened throughout human history, right? Like the invention of electricity, the car, the internet, and it does disrupt a lot of industries, but we get to the side of them. And the, and when it's finally the dust has settled, the people who live in that, that new era wouldn't want to go back. And so I do think there's going to come a day where AI can be very, very embedded. And like, forget film, this is a high-class problem. Like it's going to be, going to massively affect the rest of the world in even bigger ways. But I can't, it's a really interesting, look, there's a whole bunch to talk about with this. And I'm, I'm not avoiding it because I think it's a fascinating subject. The, the idea, so for instance, when we were making The Creator uh, about three or four years ago, because I knew it was about AI, I thought, you know what would be quite interesting is to contact the top one of the top AI companies to making music and see if I could get the soundtrack to be done by AI. Mm-hmm. And and there was this really great company who were doing really the best work. They were fantastic. And I talked to them about it and they were really open to the idea. And they were saying, well, the main thing you have to start off with is could you feed us like 10, 10 tracks that you really like that we can feed into them, you know, the AI and try and generate some music. And I so I did. And I essentially gave it a bunch of Hans Zimmer um, soundtracks. And what came back was really pretty good. You know what I mean? Like super interesting and like, oh my God, that was way better than I thought it would be. And this is four or five years ago. So like now mm-hmm. it might, I'm sure it's even moved on even more, but it was pretty, pretty damn good. And if you describe it, you go, I think that's like at least a seven out of 10, you know? And then what you realize is you start to go, okay, how do we get this to like 10 out of 10? You know, you start to hit a brick wall because the way the model works back then at least, and at least it feels that way still now, is the computer or the algorithm doesn't understand, doesn't have the taste we have, doesn't have the emotional reaction Mm. response that we have. And so it can't understand. You can listen to a song, right? And you can go, the verse is okay. And there's this, but there's this one little chord change in the chorus or somewhere in them, this one that just makes you want to cry. It's so beautiful and not what you're expecting. And it and the whole song worth listening for three minutes is worth it for that one little moment where you just go, Oh, and it's like, what's really hard is that the computer has no idea that that's the bit you love and the rest mm. is just generic, you know, of, of five out of 10. And this bit is the 10 out of 10 thing. And so it looks and it sees a load of five out of 10s. It's one 10 out of 10 moment and then a bunch of five out of 10s. And it goes, oh, looks like you like five out of 10s. I'll make a five <laughs> out of 10 track. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so you get this track back that's like pretty average, you know, and so until they figure out how to like basically give feedback and say, this is, this is that like absolutely beautiful or inspiring moment. Like, so in the end, like we end, like I was really lucky. I got Hans Zimmer to do our soundtrack for the creator. And I told him all this story and everything. They find it funny and interesting. And you don't go to Hans Zimmer for seven out of 10. You go to him for 10 out of 10. And I think the problem we have at the moment is the algorithm has no idea doesn't understand what was successful and what wasn't. It needs the feedback. Mm. And I mean, there might come a day where you can go and say, I want to watch Jurassic Park, but I want my mum and dad to be the main actors in it. And I want it to be a different ending. Give me a different ending this time. And it will generate something and play it in real time or some, you know, Star Wars, but um, make it do this instead or just surprise me. Uh, or, Or show me something that other people loved when you did that. And it, and... I can't say that that's not going to work. You know what I mean? Like, 
you start to get into these questions of like, just because a human didn't generate it, does well, does that mean it won't it won't be good? Like I'm looking out now, talking to you out the window, and it's a beautiful valley with the you know nice sunsetty sky, and a, a human didn't make that. You know that just sort of happened, but it doesn't affect it. It doesn't matter because it's still a mm. you still react to it. You know, and and if I said to you, okay, put it this way, if I said to you, all right, they solved the whole AI music thing in that room over there, and you look over in the in that room, there are people walking out crying with a big smile on their face, and I go, in that room over there, AI has made an album better than anything the Beatles ever did. Um, it's learned from everything ever made, and it's in that room. You, there's some headphones you can listen to it, and people are coming out going like crying, going, that's the most. How do I get? How do I own that? It's the most beautiful thing I've ever heard in my life. Would you want to go and listen to it? Or would you go, no, that's sacrilegious, you know? Yeah, yeah, I'd want to go and have a listen. I'd, I'd, I'd want to go and have those emotions triggered. Yeah, and if it triggered those emotions and it was amazing, would you never listen to it ever? You know, you. I think I would, I, and I think maybe the next generation are going to get over this hurdle a lot easier than us, that just because something's not like authored 100% by a human, it's not valid. Mm. You know, I think they might get past that. Like there's all these little examples. I think in the in journalism, I think in I don't know if it's the UK, but someone was telling me how uh, they banned word processing for journalists um, right. in the union or whatever because it was it felt like cheating, like not mm. right. Right. And yeah. um, and we and we look at that now like that's that's comical. Yeah. And so I I think I think it's going to evolve. And I mean I tell I tell you where it's definitely probably going to really help is things like you know in the short term it's things like pickup shoots. Yeah. Like say, say you're in the edit and you really wish an actor said something a bit different or you wanted to change the idea of a scene because it really helped the storytelling or you got feedback and this wasn't coming across or whatever. And so you could basically get the actors to say a different line using a certain different performance or something. I think then what's important with that is if you do do that, you get their consent, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I think if you said to some actors... Do you want to come over for a week to the other side of the world to shoot one line against green screen? Or can we just use this clip? Here's the clip. I think a lot about a lot of them would go, oh, that's fine. That looks real to me. It looks like yeah. I said that. Okay, go for it. And I think that'll become a normal thing probably sooner than later. But I guess the crucial bit there is the is the sign-off, is yes. having the right to sign off on it, having the ability to say, yeah, okay, I feel that. Or having the choice to say, what else have you got pl- planned on this week on the other side of the world with the green screen? Are we doing other things? Is there is there catering? I'll come out. <laughs> sausage rolls. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, a thousand percent. And it, and it's true. Like say for instance, with the post a film poster right now, the the actors on the poster get consent. Like they're not. So mm-hmm. if any poster for a movie that comes out, it gets sent to the actors, and they can have feedback. I don't like that shot. Or could I do? Could my face look more like this? Or whatever. And that's like a standard thing in all contracts, pretty much. Yeah. And I think it'll be, you know, so I, I, it's very easy to make it a standard thing mm-hmm. if that becomes a tool. Who knows? And honestly, it does feel right now like the giant asteroid hovering over the earth um, of filmmaking. And you talk to other people about it and you go, what do you think? And and to put a positive spin on it, people say things like, oh, I think it's just going to really help us, you know, it's going to help us as a tool. And I, my, I'm half worried it's a bit like, you know, working in the horse industry at the turn of the century and saying, no, cars cars are going to be really useful because they can help deliver hay to the stables. And you're like, <laughs> oh man, you have no idea. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, I, I do somehow feel though in, in years to come, they will be, be be telling the story of of the man who fed 
Pan Zimmer soundtracks into into the AI to get a Hans Zimmer like soundtrack and ended up at the door of Hans Zimmer. And that was the only way that you could truly get a Hans Zimmer like soundtrack. It's a beautiful adage of of <laughs> of how that all came about. Yeah, I, I do. The whole reason I made this movie is when the Robo Apocalypse finally comes, I'm going to be spared. Yeah, because yeah. I I, under, I understand them and empathise <laughs> yeah. with them. You're so. part of the gang. Well, I'll. I'll wrap things up. There's so much I wanted to get into, but there's only a limited amount of time. I guess I'll I'll finish by kind of asking what's ahead. And obviously we've covered that globally with the AI apocalypse, but what's ahead specifically for for Gareth Edwards? What's next? Can you talk about it? Have you got any any of those ideas that you've had on the shelf since you were a kid that you're feeling now is the time to to pluck off? Okay. Yeah, I, I, so I went to the shelf when the film finished and I had a little bit of space. And just like before, some new thing came along mm. and went, what about this? And I got really excited about it. And so I've started chipping away at a brand new idea that we'll see what happens. I feel like with like ideas or film ideas are a bit like um, butterflies. And if you go chasing them, they just fly off. Mm-hmm. But if you sit really still, they might come and land right on your hand. And so... At this early stage, I try not to carve out time and like force it. It just adds up. I'm keeping a little bunch of notes on my phone and and there's something I'm excited about, but I also want to have a little bit of a break and I don't know. I'm in no rush. Making a film is all consuming and so happy to, to take a bit of time off as well. That, that very thing you describe in there is one of the hardest things to describe to non-creatives as such that, for example, at times... If I'm spending my day sitting and playing FIFA, it's part of the process, you know. Right. <laughs> you know and, and I need those breaks for an idea to come. And it's not always as simple as you say of, right, I'll take myself off to a cabin and I'll come back with with this idea or, or, or with this, this script. You have to, certain amounts you have to allow to come naturally. And yeah, it can still kind yes. of feel like work or part of the process at least. It's like I'll sit in my office for two hours just trying to like, think like solve some problem or something about an idea. And after two hours, I'm like, man, I'm just, I'm just wasting the day. Like, and so then I'll go out and I'll go to the grocery store or something and, and uh, just some random thing will happen and it'll just click. Mm. And I always describe it like as input output. Like if all you're doing is output, it just ends up being nothing or rubbish. Like you have to go and have experiences. You have to, like your brain has to witness things and, and experience things. And then some in ways I don't obviously understand, like AI, I guess it will in a black box way, it'll it'll like mess up those things. It starts to try and store like put them away in your brain and store them away. And they'll land in such a way that's like a new twist that you hadn't thought. It'll just come out of the blue in ways you can't describe. Like that's the other thing about it, is it's what I find fascinating about AI is you go up to and I've been looking that I've had to, been able to talk to some of these engineers about how it all works, and they don't know. It's, mm. It really is a black box. It's kind of magic, like our brains. It's like they can't really control it too much. It just sort of happens. And it's a bit like when you get an idea and someone says, where'd you get that idea from? And you go, um, God, I don't know. Yeah, I can't explain it. It just sort of happened. And I think ideas are a little bit like organisms where if you take two different ones and make them merge together, like they have a child that's hopefully and you know evolved beyond what the parents were. And yeah. so... And so you're always, I'm always, probably the main thing I'm trying to do is merge ideas, like break things apart. Like if there's anything I have learned is that 
the more you can shatter an idea and 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 mess and like let it shatter and then rebuild it. If you if you rebuild it exactly as you had it, then that says something. And if you rebuild it in a better way, then that's good too. And so it's like always like trying to mutate the generic default thing that came to you and and what's the thing I'm not supposed to do? What's the how do I flip that or what's the how do I merge that with this random thing over here? Would that be interesting? No, it'd be shit. Okay, move on. Or hang on, no, that I tell you what would be interesting about that is maybe this thing. And and it's just it's really hard to find originality. You know what I mean? Like I don't think it's I always joke that originality is the ability to forget your inspiration because I don't think you can have, I don't think you can be truly original. But then if you if you're not bringing something new to the table, then why are you bothering? You know, so it's this whole yeah. It's this whole dilemma with the whole thing that I'm getting a bit profound now. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. Because again, I think another thing that people don't realise is any of those m- m- mutations or changes, you can always go back. Like people yeah. can be so precious over an initial idea. And I've been guilty of that in the past, that no, here's the vision. And then it's like, well, you can try these things. And if they don't work, you can always go back to the vision as such. Yeah. But you never know what they will spawn and how it can change everything. Yeah, I definitely agree. Yeah, you don't know the edge until you fell, fall off the cliff. Yeah, yeah. And so you've got to kind of just end up falling off the cliff at some point. Yeah. And fail, you know. Failure is is, is it probably the mo- more important than success in terms of getting somewhere, I think. I mean, it's the perfect note to end the podcast on, isn't it? Just <laughs> reveling in failure and the importance yeah. of failure. Yeah. Um, well, I appreciate you taking the time, man. It's been an absolute pleasure and it's flown by. So thank you no, very thanks much. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks so much. I'm going to have to like text Riz and Amma now. So yes. thank you as well. <laughs> Do. You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. God, I love that conversation. Ain't Gareth great? Obviously, as ever, another guest that I hope to work with at some point down the line. <laughs> it's always the way. I have, particularly with directors, had this majorly with Andrew Haig the other week. That director I'm a big f- fan of, and then have an hour-long conversation and go, oh, we could definitely work well together as well. You know? those two things aren't always one and the same you might be a big fan of someone but think you wouldn't be any great addition um i always remember in my music days people would ask who my number one person to collaborate or dream collaboration would be and a lot of people know that prince is my absolute favorite and i'd have no particular desire to collaborate with prince because i don't think i'd add anything to what prince does i don't think our way of working why am i talking about a collaboration with a now dead person going into far too much detail here all this to say i'd love to work with with gareth at some point and thank you to my guest question submitters riz ahmed and ama chadha patel yeah what a wonderful chat what a wonderful bloody chat we're having a lot of them recently and you know what it's not confirmed at time of recording but i might have a bonus episode a few later in the week it's not confirmed it's not confirmed but there's a chance i might have a little bonus for you so keep your eye out for that until then or until next week indeed stay safe and stay sane ta-ta